0: The Biblical Foundations Bible Study Online at biblicalfoundationsbiblestudy.com Taught by Chris Martin This course has been created to demonstrate the importance of biblical literacy in the 21st century. This morning, I'm going to give you a little insight on Mr. 4th of July, Thomas Jefferson. And there's some guys that eventually in time, if I go in this direction after the Gospel of John, are great examples, some are questionable examples, some are bad examples, but all of them we can use scripture to look at the lens of their life and more importantly apply it to our lives. Why Jefferson? It's been said of Jefferson that he was a 21st century man living in the 18th century. The stuff he was doing in the 18th century, philosophically, politically, and religiously, is exactly where we are in 2021. So there's tremendous application on this guy, and I put up the symbol of the exacto knife because that's what he did religiously. And that is, in my opinion, one of the greatest failings of Christians today in 2021. Whatever it is that guides them in life, whatever it is that's a founding instrument. For us, it's our Bible. For others, it's other things. But they take that document, for us, the Bible, and they just decide there are certain parts of it they don't like they decide there're certain parts of it that just doesn't apply to them. They decide that they are an exception because they've decided they are an exception to what God's word says. They've decided they're just parts of God's word. That just applies back in history. That doesn't apply to me today, or that applies to that church in Corinth. That doesn't apply to my church in Houston. That applies to that church in Colossae. That doesn't apply to my church in Houston, That doesn't apply to me. That doesn't apply to my life. So the issue of the exacto knife that cuts out scripture is as distinctly relevant today as any concept I could possibly teach you out of the Gospel of John. Because so many Christians today, when I have lunch with them, or I just talk to them, or we just communicate about what's going on in life, I will discover almost inevitably there's some aspect of scripture they have just cut out of their Bible. They just don't wanna talk about it. They don't wanna think it applies to them. They don't wanna apply it. And so with Jefferson, we're gonna see what he did. And then at the end, I'm gonna give you some life lessons for how to apply that with us. Jefferson took an exacto knife to his Bible, and I'm not kidding. He literally opened up his Bible and he said, what do I think is true from the New Testament? What he basically did was he kept the red letters, the words of Jesus. He loved the Beatitudes. He loved the sermons. He loved what we're getting into now in John chapters uh, 14, 15, and 16, where Jesus talked on the last night of his life. All of the supernatural, he cut out. Everything that John wrote in, in the epistles, everything that Peter wrote, everything that Paul wrote, everything that James wrote just got exacto knifed out. His Bible went from a couple of inches thick to a couple of millimeters thick because he decided what was true Bible. It left him with a Bible that looked like Swiss cheese. It just had huge holes in it. And while people today aren't as explicit, they do in their mind what Jefferson did with his hand. They say, I'm just going to ignore that part of the Old Testament, I'm just going to ignore that part of the New Testament, that doesn't apply to me, that doesn't apply to my situation, I'm special, I've got special circumstances. Jefferson shows us that's not the right way to do it. The Bible study verse I want to use to teach Thomas Jefferson is 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17. All Scripture, everything that's been preserved as Scripture, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. I.e. it's usable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, or you could say the man or woman of God, may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now, just to digress for a second, perfect doesn't mean any of us live a perfect life. It means perfect in the eyes of God, looking at us and our sinful lives through the lens of Jesus Christ, trying to be more like him every day in everything that we do. Now, to put that into context in Thomas Jefferson's life, let me spend 10 minutes and just kind of give you a quick biography, and then I'm going to show you what he did with God and show you what he did with Jesus Christ and show you what he did with his Bible. It's pretty stunning. I call him the amazing man from Monticello. That's his house. You can go visit it today in Virginia. If you're ever in Virginia, it's one of the greatest places you ever go see because the architecture, the gardens, the beauty is pretty amazing. He was born in 1743 to a father, that was not wealthy, but he had a wealthy friend, and the wealthy friend when he died gave Thomas Jefferson's father his entire estate. Jefferson got Monticello and the 5,000 grounds around it not from his daddy, but from daddy's best friend who gave it to daddy as an inheritance, as a gift to take care of his wife and kids. At the ripe young age of 16, Thomas Jefferson enrolled in the College of William and Mary. A picture of what it would have looked like when Thomas was there is in the upper left corner of your screen. What it looks like today is in the bottom left corner. In other words, it looks exactly the same. Jefferson was a pretty bright kid. He graduated his four years of study in two years and by his 18th birthday had his Bachelor of Arts degree. He then decided to get a three year law degree and he got that in one year and he had a law degree by the age of 19. He was a delegate to what we would call the Virginia House of Representatives. They called it the House of Burgesses, or Burgesses because they were part of England back then. They didn't have their own state sovereignty. It was basically their state or their community uh, legislative body. And as a very, very young man, he was elected to that between 1769 and 1775. He's the author of the Declaration of Independence. He wrote it at the age of 33. I learned that and I thought at 33, I was a total failure by comparison. All of us would say about the same thing. He was extremely well read. He was um, fluent in uh, French, in Greek, in Latin and English, obviously. Uh, And because of that, fluency could read the works of the Greek masters and the Latin masters and just had a tremendous understanding of the history of politics and the history of science and the history of uh, international relations. And that's where a lot of the concepts in the Declaration of Independence came from. His most uh, personally rewarding thing that he said in his own writings that he ever wrote was not the Declaration of Independence. He thought that was pretty cool. He thought that was inspired by God but what he thought he was most proud of were the Virginia Statutes for Religious Freedom. And it's very, very similar to what Dr. Taylor taught us this morning because the instrument that he created, the goal was to keep the state out of an individual's practice of religion. Keep the state out of the church house. Keep the state out of what anyone would want to do to worship. And for him it was Christians, it was Jewish, it was Muslim, it was Hindu, it was whatever you wanted to worship, keep the state out. It was never the idea to keep someone's religious thoughts out of the public forum or out of the state house. That was totally foreign concept to Jefferson. As Dr. Taylor talked about, that was a 20, 21st century concept that's been applied uh, incorrectly back through history. He became the ambassador to France. He's one of the few guys in colonial America that was fluent in French. So the Continental Congress said, how about you go be our representative to France because they needed France's money and they wanted somebody that was really gregarious, really easygoing. So from 1785 to 1789, he was the ambassador of France. The picture I've got up next to his, uh, the, the image I've got up next to his picture, his painting, is actually on the building where he lived. You can go to Paris there today, it's not too far from the Eiffel Tower. Uh, And I went there and looked at it, took a picture of it, it's really cool. And it describes he was the president, he was the vice president at one point, he was the secretary of state at one point. And oh yeah, by the way, he was the American ambassador to France. So the French still love this idea. While he was there, that was his house. That house is gone. That's the exact same view today. His house would have been off there to the right in a building that no longer (laughs) exists, uh, but it was a a, a neat place for him to stay and a great place for him to uh, uh, be a liaison between the fledgling government of the United States uh, and the well-established government of France. During President George Washington's administration, when he came back from France, Washington said, would you be my secretary of state? And he said, yes. He wanted to go back to his farm in Virginia, but he said, I will serve, so he stayed uh, in the the capital, and he served as Washington's secretary of state. Back then, they had a really weird rule. The weird rule was when two people run for the presidency of the United States, the winner becomes the president, the loser becomes the vice president. They were from opposite parties. Adams was a Federalist like Washington was. That party name has now been transformed into Republican, but back then they called them Federalists. Jefferson was a Republican that party name later got changed and became Democrat. But if you see the political ads, it's Jefferson the Republican. You see a history book on him today, Uh, the Democrats claim him as their own as one of the first. The reason why is the party names changed over time. Different lesson for a different day about why, but Jefferson the Republican ran against Adams in 1796, lost, and so the enemy in the election became the vice president and you can imagine how grumpy that made the vice president. You lose the election and you still have to serve as the vice president, but he did faithfully. In 1800, they ran against each other again. Imagine those breakfasts, your political opponents running for Adam's second term, and you gotta work together as the vice president, but your political opponents. I've read much of the literature of the election of 1800s and it is the most mud-slinging, name-calling, socially offensive literature I've ever read politically. It makes the 2020 election look like a kindergarten uh, you know, discussion of how politics ought to work. I mean, the lies, the slander, it was unbelievable. And so if you think politics is bad today, just go do a little history reading on the election of 1800s because it was horrific. In that particular election, there is all kinds of stuff where uh, I just took a couple of little headlines out of newspapers. Uh, and you can see, for example, from one of the Federalist newspapers uh, in favor of Adams, it talks about God and a religious president. That was their view of Adams. And Jefferson and no God. Right? Major newspaper in Philadelphia said, You want an agnostic as your president, vote for Jefferson. Now, not entirely true, but just like today, it didn't matter what the press said. Sometimes they were going to say it, see who believes it, and the people that like reading that gravitated to them. Those that like reading something else gravitated somewhere else. And so the whole schism that you see today in media uh, affiliations existed as early as 1800. He won the election after two terms. After 1801 to 1809, uh, he went back to Monticello. And in Monticello, he became what I call the sage of Monticello. And most of what we know today are from his letters. The stuff I'm going to read you and show you are his letters that he wrote after he was the president, where he could get philosophical. And you can go read all those letters. The letters of Thomas Jefferson are a great read but he sat in his house and he just wrote until he died. He had slaves. It's a big, big conflict for two reasons. Number one, because you read the Declaration of Independence and you say, how can this be true while you still own slaves? And it's a dichotomy that uh, Jefferson never addressed. Uh, It's one that scholars have tried to recreate, but he had this duality that basically said, yes, all men are created equal but we're still gonna have slaves. And at one point in time, he had 600. Post-presidency, he got it down to about 160. By the end of his life, he had it down to about 40. So he was always trying to give them freedom. During his legal career, he fought six cases to emancipate slaves, to free them from their masters. So he definitely had a heart for getting rid of slavery. He just didn't have the guts or the political infrastructure to do it. Uh, By all accounts, he was a very good uh, slave master. There's no reports of him being abusive or uh, doing anything that would be you'd consider bad. Uh, But uh, there is a tremendous scandal over whether or not after the death of his wife Martha, who died at a very, very young age, whether or not he fathered a child from one of his slaves, Sally Hemings. They've done all kinds of DNA research, Most modern scholars today say he did, that there is in fact a line of Jefferson descendants that came through Sally Hemings. Uh, I'm not here today to talk about that, but I just wanna tell you the majority of scholars now believe based on DNA evidence that's true. A minority of scholars say no, that DNA is his brother. There's some minority scholars that say it's a son of his. It doesn't matter to me worth a hill of beans, but that's a big academic debate for some. His third greatest accomplishment in his mind was the founding of the University of Virginia. He wanted a university, ironically, that was free of religion. He wanted a state sponsored university that would be free from religious overtones. He wanted a purely secular university. You'll see why as I get into some of his teachings in a minute. That was his initial drawing. What I've got up on the screen is his drawing of his idea of what his university would look like. That is a drawing of what it did look like, which is basically exactly like he drew. And you can see the main administrative building there on the left side of that screen. That's a picture of what it looks like today. Exactly what Jefferson drew up, exactly what they built for Jefferson, and so today it's still regarded as the school of Jefferson. Ironically, he died on this day. Today is the day that Thomas Jefferson died. Ironically, it's also the exact same day as his former political enemy, his later personal friend, John Adams, also died. Adams died that morning. He was told his friend just died. His prayer was, I'll see you soon, my friend, and within an hour, he too was dead. This is the sign that he wrote that hangs on his grave if you go visit it at Monticello. Here's Barry Thomas Jefferson. Notice the three things he, he picked out when he did this. Author of the Declaration of Independence, number one. Number two, the statute of Virginia for religious freedom. I showed you that a minute ago. And number three, the father of the University of Virginia. That's how he wanted to be remembered. Now, let me show you his beliefs. Let me tell you why I'm teaching this guy as a Bible study. On God, he did not believe in the Trinity. He did not believe Jesus Christ was God. He did not believe in the Holy Spirit. He had a very Jewish view of God, which is there is one God, and he thought Jesus was the wisest man who ever lived. He thought Jesus was sent by God. He thought Jesus was from God. He just was not God, so he would not believe in the Trinity. I'm going to show you some things he wrote. There's lots of words. I'll read it, but I want you to get a picture from his own pen what he believed. The doctrines of Jesus are simple and tend all to the happiness of man. Now, I could stop right there and we could have a discussion about what he thought the goals of Jesus' words were. Right? It didn't have anything to do with uh, salvation. It didn't have anything to do with getting away from sin. It didn't have anything to do with honoring God. It didn't have anything to do with following God's commands for God's standards. To Jefferson, it's all about the happiness of man. Number one, there is one only God, and he is all perfect. Two, there's a future state of rewards and punishment. He definitely believed in heaven. Three, that to love God with all thine heart, and thy neighbor as thyself, is the sum of religion. These are the great points upon which he endeavored to reform the religion of the Jews. That's the clearest statement I've ever found of what Thomas Jefferson thought about Jesus and God. Let me drive down just a little bit, that letter continued. Compare these with the demoralizing dogmas of John Calvin. So this is his summary of Christianity as seen through John Calvin's Institutes of Man, which in the age of Jefferson uh, would have been the leading Christian commentary on the Bible. Number one, that there are three gods. He misunderstood the Trinity. Two, that good works or the love of our neighbor are nothing. He didn't understand John 13. Come back next week. I'll teach you the end of John 13. Number three, that faith is everything. And the more incomprehensible the position, the more merit in its faith. You can see how this is digressing. Number four, that reason in religion is of unlawful use. What he's saying there is that the ability to look at something and rationalize, is this right to me or is this wrong to me, has no place in religion. He's right because of the passage I just showed you on all scripture being inspired by God. He thought you should be able to apply religion and take what you want and disregard what you want. He wanted to turn religion, Christianity, into the equivalent of Luby's Cafeteria. You take the vegetables you like. You leave the vegetables you don't like behind. You take the meat you want, you take the meat you don't want, and leave it behind. That's what he wanted to do to the Bible. That's what he wanted to do to Christianity. Number five, that God from the beginning elected certain individuals to be saved and certain others to be damned, and that no crimes of the former can damn them and no virtues of the latter save. Big misunderstanding of salvation, big misunderstanding of the Bible, but that drove him to his exacto knife. He continues in the same letter. Now, which of these is the true and charitable Christian, he who believes and acts on the simple doctrines of Jesus or the impious dogmatist as an Athanasius and Calvin to historical Christians? Verily, I say, these are the false shepherds foretold as to enter not by the door into the sheepfold, but to climb up some other way. They are mere usurpers of the Christian name, teaching a counterfeit religion made up of the deliria of crazy imaginations as formed from Christianity as that of Mohammed. He spelled Mohammed a little differently than we do, but that's who he's talking about. Now, Dr. Taylor's comment this morning about uh, the current state of politics in America shadows what I just read to you. It takes a new form of religion, and it takes Christianity and says, that's bad. That's against what I believe in, and it casts Christianity as the anti-religion rather than being the essence of religion. His letter continues, their blasphemies have driven thinking men into infidelity who have too hastily rejected the supposed author himself with horrors so false imputed to him. That's like the writings of Paul, the writings of James, the writings of John and Peter. Had the doctrines of Jesus been preached always as pure as they came from his lips, i.e. red letter only, the whole civilized world would now have been Christian. That was his letter to Dr. Benjamin Waterhouse in June of 22, when he's at Monticello being the, being the, uh, the sage. Let me show you his thoughts on Jesus. The clergy, he's talking about all the pastors, the Baptist pastors, the Episcopalian pastors, the Presbyterian pastors, he hated them all. The clergy converted the simple teachings of Jesus, i.e. red letter, into an engine for enslaving mankind and adulterated by artificial constructions into a contrivance to flitch wealth and power themselves. To these clergy, in fact, constitute the real Antichrist. As a result, he never went to church. As a result, he did not want religion in his university. He wanted religion being left to his Bible that I'm going to show you in a minute, that was inspirational, that was motivational, that was inspiring us to be better humans to other people. That had absolutely nothing to do with a standard of righteousness set forth from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 21. Another letter. He said, It is too late in the day for men of sincerity to pretend they believe in the Platonic mysticisms that are three in one, criticizing the Trinity. And that one is three. And yet that the one is not three and three are not one but this constitutes the craft and the power and the profit of the priest. He took the idea of the Trinity and he compared it to witchcraft. He thought it was hocus pocus, mumbo jumbo, because in the discussions and the red letter words of Jesus, Jesus did not describe himself in ways that would make it clear to Jefferson that he was Trinity, that he was, we would call it Trinitarian. He said in his other letter to Adams, sweep away the gossamer fabric of factitious religion and they would catch no more flies. We should all then, like the Quakers, live without an order of priest, moralize for ourselves, notice, not rely upon Bible for morality, rely upon our own wisdom, and say nothing about what no man can understand nor therefore believe. Now, this is his letter to John Adams from 1813. Some of the greatest writings between friends I've ever read are the letters between these two guys. Their comments on religion are a minor part of what they wrote about. Don't misunderstand, these guys hated working together. About as much as Hillary Trump would have hated being the vice president, or sorry, Hillary Clinton would have hated being the vice president of Donald Trump, and Trump would have been hated being the president of Vice President Hillary Clinton. That's the level of animosity when he was vice president. Then in the election of 1800, as I said, it got so bad. There was so much mudslinging, there was so much name-calling, there was so much just vicious lies and character assassination that during the time that Jefferson was president for two terms, Adams wouldn't talk to him. The the concept of the loser serving as the vice president ended when Adams said, over my dead body. And Jefferson for the first time in history got to pick his own vice president. Now. With that kind of animosity, you would assume they would go to their grave hating each other. As soon as Jefferson was out of office, he sent a little olive branch, he sent a letter. And that letter basically said, we're in our later stages of life, we've both learned a lot, we can look back and see regrets, we can look back and see things that were blessings from God. Let's develop a friendship. And to his credit, Adams agreed. And if you go by the book, Letters Between Jefferson and Adams, it is awesome. It's like Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, basketball enemies becoming best friends, which they are. Uh, It's an amazing combination of how enemies became friends And what I quoted from on this religion issue is just one of those. And so if I teach this as a Bible study to guys, I stop right here and I say in your profession, in your extended, extended family, if there's somebody you got conflict with, these guys are an example that no conflict, no hostility, no history is an excuse for you to build a bridge of friendship to a brother or for you ladies, a sister that you used to have conflict with. Because Adams and Jefferson were the most offensive political enemies you could imagine. In the last decade of their lives, they were the best friends on the planet Earth. It's an amazing story of how friendship came out of animosity. And if I teach it to guys, I give that point. This is another letter another guy commenting upon their views of Christ and religion. Ridicule is the only weapon which can be used against unintelligible propositions. He's talking about Bible that he disagrees with. Ideas must be distinct before reason can act upon them, and no man ever had a distinct idea of the Trinity. It is mere abracadabra of the Montebanks calling themselves the priests of Jesus. If it could be understood, it would not answer their purpose. He's basically saying, once again, the idea, the biblical idea that Jesus is God is the equivalent of witchcraft abracadabra. He said he was a great man, like many people do today, but he would not recognize that he is God, would not recognize his crucifixion for sin, certainly would not recognize a resurrection, would not recognize his appearance to disciples afterwards. In his mind, Jesus was crucified, he died, and he's in the ground just like everybody else is who died. He would not recognize the miracles of the Bible. He said to theologian James Smith in 1822, in fact, Athanasian paradox, talking about an old writer, Athanasia, that one is three, but three is one, is so incomprehensible to the human mind that no candid man can say he has any idea of it. And how can he believe what presents no idea? He who thinks he does only deceives himself. Now, I want you to understand what was going on here that made this possible. He created a worldview that today we would call an echo chamber. We would call it a system that you put yourself into where no one will give you a counter thought. It's like surrounding yourself with 12 friends that don't believe in the Bible so that no one will ever raise a concept in the Bible to you. It's like subjecting yourself to 12 friends that are of a certain political ideology so that no one has the ability to raise an alternative idea. So Jefferson wrote letters to and surrounded himself with men like him that thought the red letters of Jesus were awesome. Everything else was wrong. So Jefferson lived his entire life having nothing but casual, polite conversations with a pastor, with a theologian, with a seminary professor. At the time, he had guys like George Whitfield come and try to share his faith with him, one of the greatest preachers that has ever lived, one of the greatest theologians that ever lived. And Jefferson would not talk to him because to him it was like listening to somebody that was just babble. In other words, if you surround yourselves with people who think just like you, look just like you, sound just like you, how do you ever have the possibility of hearing truth because it assumes there's nothing outside of truth besides what I've decided to believe. Now, I could go on a 21st century rant here about media and politics and a whole host of other things, but Jefferson is a great illustration for us to avoid the echo chamber, that you can find truth in somebody who disagrees with you. You can find truth in scripture that you disagree with because it's truth. You can find truth in a Christian who may not view your style of worship as exactly the way you do style of worship up here on Sunday mornings. It's an idea that in the search for truth of ideas, it's okay to listen to somebody who disagrees with you. In our world, it's okay to listen, if you're a Republican, to a Democrat. It doesn't say you have to agree with them, but listen to the point of view so it can shape your perspective of true truth. If you're a Christian, it means it's okay to have a Muslim friend. It's okay to have a Hindu friend. It doesn't say you necessarily agree with what they believe theologically, but you can get insight on culture, insight on ideas and work those into your own understanding of true truth, and Jefferson lived in an echo chamber. Jefferson would not talk to anyone that believed anything other than himself, so as a result, he just kept repeating the same thing over and over again, saying this is ridiculous, this is witchcraft, this is absurd, because the echo chamber of his life were about 30 friends that thought the exact same way. If that's the way you live your life, that echo chamber will inevitably lead you down a wrong path. I don't care how strong your faith is. I don't care what part of the Bible you believe in. If you surround yourself in an echo chamber of friends or work or family or media, it will lead you down a wrong path. Because somewhere, somehow, there's going to be something that takes you slightly off path. And by the time you realize it, it's too late. Another letter to one of his friends, Vandy Kemp, he said the genuine and simple religion of Jesus will one day be restored, such as it was preached and practiced by himself. Very soon after his death, it became muffled up in mysteries and has ever since been kept in concealment from the vulgar eye. To penetrate and dissipate these clouds of darkness, the general mind must be strengthened by education. That was his idea of the all-secular University of Virginia. Now, that's his Bible. You can get a modern printout of it today on Amazon.com. Like I said, it's a couple of millimeters thick. It's the abridgment of Jesus' words, which took his New Testament, and with an exacto knife carved out every single thing other than what Jesus said. There may be a couple of words of transitions where Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John said, and then Jesus went here. And then Jesus said this. So he left in some transition, but the bulk of the black letters all went away. That started in 1804, continued later on. So he started in the White House, apparently had some idle time as president. (laughs) He then later in retirement, decided to expand it a little bit more. He found in his own reading some things in some of the other books of the New Testament that quoted Jesus or echoed Jesus, and he'd say, these three verses out of the book of Romans deserve to survive. And he has a slightly longer version of the New Testament, but it's not much longer. And I've got up there a copy of one of the original handwritten versions, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, uh, that he wrote... In Greek, Latin, and English for scholars that wanted to study it. And you can also buy this on Amazon.com. The bottom line is it was him deciding for himself truth. It was him deciding for himself what part of God's word he was going to follow, what part of God's word he wasn't going to follow. It was him living in an echo chamber where no one would speak truth to him because he didn't want to hear it. Don't confuse me with the truth of God's word. If I don't believe it, I'm not going to follow it. I'm not going to believe it. He's known for the separation between church and state. One of his quotes before he left office was, erecting the wall of separation between church and state is absolutely essential to a free society. That later became the cornerstone of what the courts, the United States Supreme Court would describe as the separation between church and state. In his mind, it was keeping church out of religion. As I said a minute ago, in his mind, it was never keeping a uh, nativity scene out of the courthouse. It was never keeping a cross out of the state house. It was never keeping a Bible out of the house of the president. In his mind, it was an issue of encroachment. So he literally envisioned an impenetrable wall. Where religion would not go into education, state would not come into religion. His fear was, quite frankly, a Christian government. He feared that the government of everybody that he didn't like, that was in every position in office, would impose those views on him they would impose those views on a jewish congregation they would impose those views on an islamic congregation and he was totally opposed to that he wanted the freedom to do anything he wanted to and if that man take an exacto night to his bible he could take an exacto night to his bible and the government shouldn't be able to dictate that today it's been flipped on its head as we heard about in the sermon this morning where the idea is separation between church and state means anything religious cannot encroach in the public sector. Jefferson never believed that. No one of his day ever believed that. It's a modern day political movement and our courts will fight it out. Let me end for you on two thoughts. Thought number one comes from scripture. First Peter chapter three, verses 15 and 16. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. That's what Jefferson refused to do. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. This does not mean you have to be a theologian on Genesis 1 through 11. This does not mean you've got to be a theologian on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This does not mean you've got to understand the book of Romans and be able to teach it. This means when somebody like Jefferson says, how can Jesus be God? You need to be able to give a simple answer. How do I know that Jesus Christ was the son of God? You need to be able to have an answer. How do I know that Jesus Christ was crucified and was raised from the dead on the third day? You need to be able to have an answer. How do I know that my Bible is true? How do I know that it's not corrupted? You need to have an answer. Now, come to class long enough and I'll teach you all that stuff, but you guys need an answer to that tomorrow. It's something you can't just kick down the road forever because there are people walking around in your jobs, in your extended family, I'm willing to bet, In your neighborhood, that have the exact same view as Thomas Jefferson. He was a 21st century man living in the 18th century, and most of the people in our culture today, regardless of faith or no faith, have the exact same view. Jesus was a wise man. I love those red letters. I'll read the Beatitudes all day long, I'll read John chapter 17 all day long. But you want to talk to them about healing? You want to talk to them about new life? You wanna talk to them about a rebirth through the Holy Spirit? You wanna talk to them about the death and resurrection of Christ? You wanna talk about the deity of Christ? Whoa, to them, like Jefferson, that's like witchcraft. So the motivation of Jefferson is that he's multiplied by a couple of billion and they work with you, they're in your neighborhood, they're in your extended family, they're among your group of friends, and we all have to have an answer. We all have to know enough so that over a cup of coffee, over a lunch discussion somewhere, over a social encounter somewhere, you can answer the basic questions. Maybe it's just you knowing enough to give them a copy of a book like Josh McDowell's More Than a Carpenter. Costs three bucks. I used to give them out by the hundreds, right? Right? before I could explain anything. Maybe it's you just say, hey, I don't have all those answers, but let me set up lunch with Chris Martin and I'll go to lunch with you guys. Uh, Maybe it's, hey, come to church with me and hear Pastor Greg preach and maybe you can get some more of your questions answered. Right? Whatever it is, there's different ways to get people to answer the questions you may not know the answer to, but you got to know enough not to end the conversation. It's why you got to be reading books on the the evidence of our faith. Reading books on the security of our salvation in your spare time, reading some books on ways to deepen your faith so you can answer the hard questions. And in my library, I've got about 200 of those. I'll be happy to share my my little biography or my little uh, bibliography with you if any of you want to know what's a good thing to read. Good place to start, Josh McDowell's More Than a Carpenter. Like I said, 3 bucks on Amazon, great read last point of application at your funeral will there be any room to debate that you were a Christian the biggest debate since Jefferson died is the question of is he in heaven I'll let you draw your own conclusions based on what I've said but he did not believe Jesus was the son of God he did not believe Jesus was God He did not believe Jesus did a single miracle. He did not believe Jesus died and rose for your sin and my sin. He did not believe that Jesus is the right hand of God waiting for me and you who believe in him as an act of faith. It led to centuries of debate over was he a Christian. The application for you is if you died tonight and the rest of us are at your funeral next week, Is anyone having a debate? Does anyone have a question as to whether you are in fact a Christian? Would they scratch your head based on your lunch conversations? Would they scratch your head based upon your language? Would they scratch your head based upon how you react in a time of crisis or turmoil? (laughs) Would they scratch their head based upon how you treated them over the years? The greatest funerals to go to are those where there is no debate whatsoever. They are believers. They got language that matches it. They got a life that matches it. They got a ministry that matches it because they're using their spiritual gifts. And you go to their funeral and it's a joy. There is no sorrow. There is no regret. It's like my dad's funeral. It was a celebration of life. It was not a morning of death. That's an awesome funeral. But for all of us, each one of us, we got to ask the question, if I died today, is there any debate in the audience at my funeral that I was, in fact, a Christian leaving a Christian life? If there is, it's not too late to tweak that. It's not too late to motivate that. It's not too late to start reading some things. It's not too late to start making some changes in language and friends and social life and time in your Bible and other things that we do. So if that's a motivation for you, use it to make 4th of July a change in your life so that when the Thomas Jeffersons in your life come up to you and say the same types of things I just showed you on the screen, you can say, I may not have all the answers, but I got one answer. I can tell you a little bit and then I can show you where else to go read or some else to come talk to and we can get some of those other big questions you got answer." Now... Next week, we're going to jump back into John chapter 13. I'm going to finish John chapter 13 on the greatest love lesson any of us will ever learn. It's not about marriage. It's not about parenting. It's not about anything other than Jesus talking to disciples on the greatest thing we can do as Christians and that's love each other. We're going to get real specific on how we're supposed to love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's an awesome lesson. Like I said, at the end of John, I'm thinking about doing a really unique study that I've never heard in the history of my life growing up as a Christian. I'm thinking about doing a Bible study on the history of Christianity through characters. John dies. The Bible's done. Revelation 21 there's a whole bunch of men and women that came behind that laid down their lives for scripture, that wrote about scripture, things that we still follow today, that lived in tumultuous times of anxiety and depression and fear and abusing substances and unemployment and uh, being publicly ridiculed in the press And all kinds of things that when they happen to us today, we think, oh my goodness, my world is over. No one's ever dealt with this before. And if you study the great men and women of scripture, you see what made them survive was hanging on to scripture. Some of the great men and women of of history aren't necessarily good examples. Thomas Jefferson, I did not teach you so that you'd know what a great man of God looked like. I taught Thomas Jefferson so you could see what a couple of thousand people around you look like and be motivated for how to deal with them. Christian history is littered with those kind of people with the urge of the Holy Spirit and the blessing of Pastor Greg. I'm thinking about doing that for about a year. So if you like that, stay tuned this through June because I'm thinking about doing that because I've never heard anybody do that before. And I think it'd be kind of cool for our class to say that. So if you like this, hang around. I may be doing that at the end of the Gospel of John. If you've got questions, feel free to ask me. Otherwise, thanks for everybody who came in person. Thanks for everybody who joined us online. Uh, And let's close in prayer. For those of you here next week, I'll see you back for John 13. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to come and study your word. We thank you for the chance to learn about you and your word and the importance that all scripture is inspired by you. It's not subject to an exacto knife. It's not subject to us disregarding. It's supposed to be focused by us to focus on your word, your son, your son our salvation and the commands you've given us, whatever the problem in life is, whatever the struggle is, whatever we feel that's so unique about whatever's dragging us down, all these different struggles that tie us all down, there are answers in scripture. There's answers through the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. And we thank you for the access to you. We thank you for the access to your word. We thank you for the chance to come and study your word. And we thank you for the opportunity to be loved by you, accepted by you, changed by you, bettered by you, healed by you. Not by our willpower, not by our physical actions, not by our mental energy, but through the power of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In whose name we praise you, in whose name we ask all these things, in Jesus' name, amen. Look forward to seeing you all next week. Thanks for joining us. This has been a presentation of the Biblical Foundations Bible Study. Online at BiblicalFoundationsBibleStudy.com. All rights reserved.